If you have God's word, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter number 9 this morning. Mark chapter number 9. If you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. I'm going to take the passage um, that we read last week and we're going to read the entirety of it. Um, but again, our focus is going to be this morning on verses 49 and 50. As we preached uh, 42 through 48 last week, the emphasis again, the sermon will come. But for context's sake, I'd love to read the entirety of it. Um, Mark writes by the inspiration of the Spirit of God to us. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, that's verse 42, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is our text. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Again, let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for the eternal word of God. And just pray that you would do eternal things with it now. Father, we pray that, um, um, that we came with many things and uh, for many hopes, many dreams, many desires that we, we thought when we came to church this morning. I pray that we lay all those aside, Father, and just um, be content and blessed for you to accomplish the work that you desire this morning. So, Father, again, I just pray that you'd help me to be faithful to the text, and that you'd help the people, Father, to receive it joyfully. Uh, with hope and peace and um, courage and boldness, gladness, even, Father, if it's difficult at times. And that the word of God would just go forth with the freedom in our hearts uh, because you have prepared it for such a thing. Thus, help us to receive it joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Again, some of you are visiting with us and Just to kind of update you, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark, taking a couple of um, excursions from time to time to handle pastoral things, but for the most part, um, we're just walking through the book of Mark over the last year, um, verse by verse, uh, simply to take the word of God as it was written, and particularly to learn of Christ. Um, having never preached the gospel, I thought it was something necessary for me, but also thought it was something necessary for us. Um, to take some time to glean into the very person, nature, character, and work of Christ. Mark being consumed in the last eight chapters, um, particularly with the passion of Christ. And we're coming up on that. And that's what he's been preparing his disciples for. The book of Mark begins for that very reason. Um, he tells us his purpose in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, and that is essentially to reveal the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We find that in various ways. Mark chapters 1 through 8, really, um, his, his, his ministry is to the crowd, it's to the public. 
Um, it's to go through all throughout uh, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, um, preaching the good news, the good news of, of, of Christ, which is repent. It's the same message that John preached. It's the message um, that was prophesied of old that would come. Um, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They don't fully understand that. Um, and the first eight chapters are really geared towards um, identifying himself as, as the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Thus, we see uh, particular miracles that he does, not just willy-nilly or here and there or just because it seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Uh, particularly those things that are recorded in the book of Mark and I, I believe all throughout the Gospels are pictures, are, are, are windows into the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And it is in such a way that Jesus is saying um, to uh, New Testament Israel, um, Pharisees and His disciples, that He is the Messiah that was prophesied of old. Um, in Mark chapter 9, you almost see a, 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 a detour, a, a, a differing of direction. And now He is focusing in on His disciples um, he's moved from the public and he's moved from the crowd and now he's got his sights set on those 12, those men whom he has been most intimate with for years now. And now he is going to prepare them to be um, the foundation stones of the temple in which he would lay by giving his own life um, upon a cross voluntarily according to the will of God, thus enduring the wrath that we, that we as sinners um, justly deserve. Um, that he would become and be exalted as that chief cornerstone, but alongside him he would lay foundation stones and those would be his apostles. And we looked at the end of Mark chapter 8 and the beginning of Mark chapter 9 and, we, and it's here that he pointedly, explicitly begins to lay out the gospel um, in the most vivid form that he has. He's clearly just teaching the gospel to them that he, uh, to be exalted, he, to be honored and glorified, uh, must first, as a man in his humanity, uh, must first suffer, and die. And we saw that at the end of Mark chapter number 8. And when we enter into Mark chapter number 9, we remember that um, Jesus takes His three intimate most intimate disciples, it seems, um, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. There He pulls back the divine, uh, the, the divine veil, or the human veil, I mean, and, he, and He shows them the divine. Um, and we looked at that. They come off of the mountain and what happens? He finds the rest of his disciples, um, apart from Peter, James, and John, disputing. Who's he disputing with? The scribes. Why? Because there's a man who has came. And this man has a demon-possessed boy. He looks for Christ as his only hope and he can't find him. Who does he find? The disciples. And then he is once again hopeless because the disciples do not have the ability at that time um, through their faithless, he says, you faithless generation, their lack of faith, and he looks at him, and he pretty much says that the, 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 the inability is not in me, it's in you. That with faith, all things are possible. But the disciples are disputing because they can't, with the scribes, because they can't, um, they can't uh, do what they were doing with Christ's authority in former days. Um, one little demon-possessed boy, and they have no power. It says they have no strength, no ability to accomplish it. So Jesus does the unthinkable after he ministers to this man. Um, a spark of faith is wrought in him, and this boy is brought from death to life, and, and he does the unthinkable, he does the impossible. Why? Because of the, uh, of the faith that was born in this, this man. They proceed from that, and what happens? Instead of glorying in Christ and His teaching, um, they fail to understand, as He teaches them once again his, about His suffering, um, that He must go and He must die. And again, this quarrel becomes between the disciples as they're walking um, to Galilee. And, um, and a dispute arises. 
They get to wherever it is that they're going and Jesus looks at them because Luke tells us he knows what's in their heart and he asks them, what are you disputing about? And they tell him, we're disputing about who the greatest in the kingdom is. Of course, after uh, much awkward silence, one of them blurts it out uh, because Jesus already knew what was happening. And it could be that uh, Peter, James, and John, just through the incidents that had happened, um, it, it enters one of their minds that one is greater than the other, maybe because they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration or possibly because of the inability of the other disciples. Maybe one of them are looking and saying, we could have accomplished that had we been there. Um, who knows exactly why, but it's, an oft, it's, a, it's a common conversation uh, between the disciples um, concerning who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. Jesus takes the position of a rabbi, sits down for a moment, gathers these little children around his, uh, around his feet, and he teaches them who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. I mean, the greatest is the humble, he, he, he essentially says. Those that humble themselves, those who take the form of a servant, those who lay aside rights and authority, um, which is very pertinent to their conversation. Why? Because now they're, they're waging authority over one another. Who's the greatest? Who's, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to have a seat at the right hand or the left and other conversations that they have? I mean, Jesus teaches them that really, the, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the first, then you must be um, the last and no doubt they're laying stumbling blocks before one another. So Jesus answers that and, 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 he, and he addresses the issue of laying stumbling blocks before your brother and he shows them the, the great weight that carries with it. He says um, that it would be better for people who do that to one of my little children who believe, to, to one of those that are mine, to the least of you, the least of these, it'd be better um, if a millstone was gathered or, or tied around your neck and you were thrown into the, the sea. It'd be better if you drowned. Showing us just the the great weight of our own depravity and our own sin. We who exercise and abuse authority often and lay stumbling blocks before our brothers thinking they should be more mature than that, thinking that they should be um, able to handle that, that they should be better than this or that. And thus we abuse the authority that we often have and the liberty that we have in Christ and lay stumbling blocks before our brothers. And he says that um, if that's the case, this is, it'd be better for you um, if you drowned in the sea. And then he teaches them how and what they are to do with that sin. They are essentially to cut it off. We read a quote by Spurgeon last week, and I want to begin with that again, um, concerning the nature of our sin. He teaches us the great necessity of, of recognizing the gravity and the weight of our sin, even, even in Christ, as it's done away with. And we understand that it's all departed for those who are in Christ and there bears no eternal weight, but practically speaking, it still bears some weight um, in this life as we sin against one another. Um, thus, he charges them um, to cut it off. And Spurgeon says this, When the prophet Elijah had received the answer to prayer, and the fire from heaven had consumed the sacrifice in the presence of all the people, he called upon the assembled Israelites to take the priest of Baal and sternly cried, Let not one of them escape. He took them down all to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Spurgeon says, so it must be with our sins. They are all doomed. Not one of them must be preserved. Our darling sin must die. Spirit not for its much crying. Strike, though it be as dear as an Isaac. Strike, for God struck its sin when it was laid upon His own Son. With stern, unflinching purpose must you too condemn to death that sin which was once the idol of your heart. A sin is not something that the Christian can take lightly. 
I mean, it's something that has grave consequences contained within it, just a, a piece of stolen fruit um, in the garden contained within it, your sin, or the, 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 um, the extent of your sin and my sin and that nature which would be cast upon all mankind that would culminate in Genesis chapter 6 and the evil of, hearts, of men's hearts continually. Thus God would cleanse the earth, save eight people, and one day He will return again, not in like fashion but with fire um, to judge all those who stand in opposition with Him. And we want to take sin often, and we take it very, very lightly. Jesus says that's not the case. Um, you should cut it off. Why? His motivation was that those who, um, I think, un- unbridled, without faith and repentance, unbridled, um, who think that they can have their, uh, you know, eat their cake and have it too, that they can, that they can uh, sin because it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, those who carry on with unbridled sin um, should have every uh, intention of um, hellfire. And brimstone one day. Why? Because it's characteristic of the unbeliever. And the believer is one by the Spirit of God who is wrought by the grace of God. And in that new birth, the Spirit of God comes and lives and dwells within him. Thus, he is a soldier. He is a warrior. The Word of God is very clear. God is very clear that those that are his wage war against the sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Particularly those, those, which, um, are, 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 those members which are within oneself. That yes, we have the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God wages war with the flesh. And that the believer, that, that one who has been born by the Spirit of God, is one who takes, um, takes his sin um, very gravely. And when he sees it, he kills it. And he kills it not of his own strength, but by um, its power. But by the, by the power of the Spirit of God. Enter verse 49. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. And that when we wage war against sin and that we live in this world, I'm convinced that um, the only way that we persevere to the end is because God is with us. And that God uses means to preserve us. And one of those means to preserve us, I am convinced, um, is that we are being salted with fire. Being salted with fire. And you could ask the question, how in the world could, could, a, could, a, could anyone... Um, persevere in this culture, you know? And not even in this culture in your own life. I mean, how many of us wake up every single day um, with that old man and look in the mirror and wonder how we're going to make it another day? You glean down into the depravity of your own soul. Your children do something. Your wife does something. Your, your, your boss does something. This person or that person does something. We see something in the culture and, and how often do we look in and wonder how in the world could we ever persevere? Except the grace of God. And it's not even the culture most days, and it's not even the world most days, and it's not even the devil most days, it's us. You know, we look in and we see our own depravity, we see our own capability, we see the nature of our father Adam, and we wonder how in the world we could ever be enough or do enough or, or get far enough to where you know, we could even please God. And we're often reminded of, of the gospel day in and day out. And, and I mean, if you don't, I would encourage you to wake up with a reading that reminds you that every single day of the, of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, but also the power of the Spirit and His, His, His eternal covenant with you um, that He renews day in and day out. And He often, I need to say this, he often, according to this verse, I believe, renews it with fire. He renews it with fire. But this passage, let me just throw this out there before we get started. This passage is a unique passage. 
It's unique to Mark's gospel. You won't find it in Matthew. You won't find it in Luke. You won't find it in John. Um, And because it is so unique and because Jesus doesn't necessarily tell us exactly what this means, um, you can go to 12 different commentators and you can get 12 different thoughts on what this text means. Um, But by God's grace, I want to give you what I'm, I'm convinced that this text means this morning. Um, but if you were to go to, again, someone else, you were to listen to another uh, preacher or teacher, you may get another idea. Um, but I think that this is, according to the context, what Jesus is getting at. And essentially, um, what I desire for you to walk away with, and if God gives you something else as you walk away with, then glory be to Him. Um, but I think that we can walk away from last week's sermon and feel somewhat impotent and incapable to accomplish the task at hand. Cutting off sin, killing it, strangling it, um, weaning it off, some days seems almost impossible. And I believe it contained within these two verses, as painful as it may be in a few moments, um, is God's promise of covenanting together with you to be faithful, to carry you through the fires, the trials, and even um, the sins of this life, that He is a covenant-keeping God, and He will be faithful to you as you labor hard and difficult times for Him. So let's begin. For everyone will be salted with fire, he says, and, or seasoned with fire. Again, you may have a translation that literally says salted with fire. It could be translated um, either way. I believe God is speaking directly to the issue of what God is going to do in us and for us in the process of trials, tribulations, but in the context, in the cutting off of hands, uh, cutting off of feet, and the gouging out of eyes. Essentially, what He is going to do in this life for the Christian is purify us and preserve us through, not only through, but by trials. So he's not only going to purify and preserve you through trials, he is going to purify and preserve you by trials. That trials are actually going to be the means by which God tests your faith, cultivates it, strengthens it, and gives you more courage, boldness, grace, and spirit-wrought graces that will cause you to persevere in the faith. I believe that that's the language that's being used here, um, seasoned with fire. Um, There there may be disputes among commentators exactly the interpretation of how this applies to life, but almost everyone that I've read and leaned upon, and I believe is accurate as I've tried to lean upon the Spirit of God this week in this interpretation or in this text, um, goes back to Leviticus chapter number 2. You may remember Leviticus. That's probably where many of you fell off this year um, in your Bible reading. Um, and went over to one of the Gospels because it's so much more refreshing. But I would encourage you to persevere through the book of Leviticus and read it with a Christ-like lens. Man, how just bountiful it is when you see Christ in everything, particularly in the sacrifices. But in Leviticus chapter um, 2 and verse number 12, you read these words. And if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head and kill it before... uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading uh, chapter 3. Chapter 2 and verse number 12. As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord. But they shall not be burned on the altar or for a sweet aroma. 
And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And then in Numbers chapter number 18 and verse number 19 you read these words. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever. Before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. And then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel." And he goes on in this language of covenant, speaking of forever, of enduring. Of course, we know that the old covenant was uh, not uh, was was somewhat contingent upon their obedience. That's, but but even in that covenant, you're going to find the enduring of the faithfulness of God, because that covenant was not a unilateral covenant in many forms. Um, they were to inherit the land and they were to enjoy its blessings insofar as their obedience. Um, but thus the covenant was kept when God would bring the fire. God would bring the trials. He would bring the ch- tribulations. He would bring the chastisement. He would bring the discipline um, to the people of God under the old uh, covenant. And that, that covenant would endure uh, even in spite of their disobedience because there was, there was uh, responsibilities laid upon both of those parties, God and the nation, um, and thus, whenever God, you know, in, in the major prophets and in the minor prophets, often um, the judgment that is come, coming to them um, is not God being unfaithful to them, but it's actually God keeping covenant. It is God being faithful to His promises. And there were promises that if they did not obey. So you see the enduring nature of it, that, that all the offerings that were brought to God under the old covenant um, needed to be salted. Eventually, as Scripture unfolds, you begin to find the terminology such as the covenant of salt, not only in Numbers, but also in Second Chronicles. Uh, that, that, that most people believe that that is exactly what's being referenced here in Leviticus 2.13 and in Mark chapter number 9. So you, as an Old Testament worshiper, if you were present in the days of Israel, would bring your offering to God. And with it, you would bring some salt. Salt being the symbol of often of purifying an offering before God and also the preservation of an enduring covenant. Salt symbolizes that in this sacrificial covenant act that the covenant would endure. That the covenant between God and man would be unbreakable, would last forever, and would never be broken. So what Jesus is saying to His disciples is that in the process of trials and tribulations and fire, or in the cutting off of hands, the gouging out of eyes, the lopping off of legs, in the process of killing sin in their lives, that He would purify and preserve them. He would salt them with fire. He would salt them with fire. And we get a few principles from this text. Um, Principle number one being that that God desires sacrifices. The sacrifices in this text are not the sacrifices of an old covenant. If you read this text in Mark chapter number 9, that the sacrifice that is to be salted, is to be seasoned with fire, uh, is the disciple. The disciple here is pictured as the sacrifice. Verse number 49, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And then in the next text he says, um, Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will, it be, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves. 
That the sacrifice in this text, according to Christ, is the believer. It is the disciple. That the one who will be salted, the one who will be seasoned, um, is, the one who, is the one who takes up their cross and follows Jesus. And you know as well as I do that under the New Covenant, that that is exactly what you find in the New Testament. Um, probably one of the most well-known uh, passages of evangelicalism, whether it's interpreted right or wrong, is Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Remember, it's, it's almost similar language. Lop it off. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, just a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter number 6, he says it a little different. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as, be as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. In Corinthians, he says it this way. Do you not know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him, being Christ, purifies himself as He is pure. That discipleship to Jesus in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, according to Paul, according to Christ Himself, according to the other apostles, according to Peter, um, is a total claim upon one's life. That in the language of the sacrifice, it must be totally consumed. Otherwise, it's worthless. Rather than consuming believers in, in frustration or in failure, however, trials in this life will, will make their holy walk acceptable unto God. That as you come to Christ, that as I come to Christ, as, as, as the new birth is wrought in us and the Spirit of God writes a new law upon our hearts and causes us to walk in His statutes, that part of those statutes is laying hold of Christ. It is being a sacrifice. It is giving your wholesale commitment to Christ in every area of life. There is not one member within your body. There is not one, as, as one of my boys said this week, one of your phalanges, uh, one of your fingers, one of your toes that does not belong to Him. Particularly because He created you, but even more than that, because Christ bought you. Therefore, your body is His body. And as Paul says, you are that those members that used to be utilized um, by yourself and by the world, the flesh and the devil, and are utilized as members of unrighteousness now that you have taken up your cross and followed Him, and you are in Christ. Every single one of those uh, little members belongs to Him. They were a sacrifice that is to be acceptable unto Him. That everything needs to be dedicated to the Lord who bought you. Um, not as a sin offering, not, as, not for any atonement, um, but because Christ atoned for your sins and as a thanksgiving offering to Him out of the gratitude of your heart because He's, what, he's wrought in you. Um, everything that prevents that needs to be cut off. It needs to be hacked away. It needs to be gouged out. And much, and much of the time that is accomplished, not, 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 not only positively through the preaching of God's Word, through the fellowship of the saints, you know, through the blessings that He gives, and you look and you think, man, God is so gracious to me, but oftentimes it happens as we are salted by fire. Fire, I take to mean trial. 
Fire I take to mean tribulation. Fire, trial I take, or fire I take to mean um, um, purifying through fire. Um, I take it to mean difficulty. I take it to mean all the things that may cause pain and discomfort in our lives. That God often uses that to make us more like Him and to preserve us. And that's honoring to Christ. To be salted with fire seems to, to evoke the imagery of a temple sacrifice. But the victims who are salted now in this covenant are worshipers themselves. That our dedication to the service of, of, the, of, a, of a suffering Messiah is like a burnt offering, total and irrevocable. When that, when, that, when that sacrifice was laid under the old covenant and salted, and it was totally consumed, and it was consumed that day. It was His. It was never to return. And that whenever you come to Christ by faith and repentance, the Spirit of God now takes residence in your life in such a way that, that those that are His persevere. It is there to be totally consumed. Every area of life, every member that was waging war against Him in a former life is now to, to take off the old man and to be utilized um, by Christ as you put on Him for waging war against the world, the, the devil, and even the flesh. And I know that doesn't sound that great, you know? Wouldn't it be great if God just preserved us and purified us through just lavishing gifts on us? Like That would be wonderful. But we often see that in a biblical pattern, it is exactly the opposite. What we see oftentimes in the nation of Israel, and you know probably through life and a pattern of living, that oftentimes in Deuteronomy 6, God tells us that you need to beware because it's often in times of prosperity that pride builds up and you forget exactly who God is. Thus God covenants with us to keep us. And that oftentimes the covenantal work of God in us is, is to bring us to Him. Not through the fire, but by the fire. That the fire is actually what makes us more like Him. 1 Peter chapter 3, Nathan read at the beginning of the service this morning. I want to read it to you again, because that's exactly Peter's experience. It's not only Peter's reception of the Spirit of God, the Word of God through the Spirit of God, but it's, it's Peter's experience. Peter knows this. Peter knows this, and we know that Peter knows this um, in some sense because at one time in the life of the Gospels, in the life of the ministry of Jesus Christ, um, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, the, the Satan hath desired to sift thee. You know, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And that it's through the sifting of the devil, that it's often through the trials and tribulations that God actually uses to um, aid believers in persevering. But he says these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ uh, from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Man, that's wonderful. Who are kept by the power of God. We love that too. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We love that. In this you greatly rejoice. And we do. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Though it tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you seen you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. And the idea is, is that, that, that faith is tested and proven and made more pure through the trials. That in God's great mercy, He's birthed into you and into His family. That He is going to keep you and He's going to keep you by faith. How are you going to keep the faith? God is going to put it to the test. He's going to put it in the fire of affliction. And that fire of affliction is going to purify it and preserve it. That trials for the Christian should ultimately, on our most sanctified days, not discourage or cause us to doubt God's existence, although on many days it does. Instead, we are to thank God for them. That He sends us trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They drive away any self-confidence, any pride, and keep us as dependent upon the Lord as possibly. Fire cannot, and this is one of the things, fire does not and cannot destroy gold in the end. But it can and does destroy any combustible impurities and separates the dross out of it, the impurities, as it is filtered off by the refiner. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Peter. And that's exactly what you may see um, in this life. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12. As Peter goes on, he says, These words, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some think it strange, things happen to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That you, being a partaker in the sufferings for the Word's sake, for Christ's sake, becomes a partaker with Christ. You fellowship with Him in His sufferings. That's what Paul says in Romans. Uh, he says in Romans chapter number 5 that, that through the trial and affliction of, of, of sufferings and, and various other things, that, that it builds patience, it builds endurance, it builds hope, and it builds a whole uh, host of other graces that could not otherwise um, be wrought in you had you not went through the fire. That, that, that what I'm trying to get across and today, too, mostly for me, you know, as I try to live this thing out and preach the word to me and as Christ ministers to me and his spirit ministers to me on many hard days where I'm there alone with myself or I'm facing the world, I'm looking at the culture or, or this or that. And I'm wondering what the meaning and purpose of all this is, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And getting discouraged and getting depressed or getting um, sidetracked because I'm trying to figure out this thing and that thing and what's going on here. And, and, and often days it just seems meaningless. Thus we must be rerouted to the, to, to the text, to the Word of God, to the faithfulness of God to understand that, 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 it, that it does carry meaning. That it does carry weight. That whether you may not ever know the ultimate purpose of it or, the, or the, the, the practical purpose of it here and now, the ultimate purpose of, or at least one of the ultimate purposes of it, um, is to bring God glory through making you more like Him. And thus, these trials, when received appropriately, um, offer us things in this life that would never have came otherwise. 
and enables us to cut off things that we otherwise would have never been able to cut off in our own strength. Thus, we are to embrace the fire in that sense because we know that it could never consume us. It could never take us. You know, it could never um, erase us. Not, be, not, not when God is covenanted with us. Not when He promises to endure with us. Alongside us. To come to us in the midst of it. And ultimately, if it does take this body, um, do not fear He who can destroy body, but fear He who can destroy body and soul in hell. That ultimately, that they can take this, but they cannot take me. Because God has me. That's the idea. And it's a contrast. This text is growing out of the previous passage that we preached last week. That the idea is of fire. The fire is contrasted to the fire of eternal hell. That everyone receives fire in some sense. And the argument goes like this. You know, cut it off because it would be better for you to receive fire with salt than to receive fire in eternal hell. So cut it off. Be the sacrifice. That the unbelieving um, never engages in warfare with the flesh. That the unbelieving person who never engages in warfare with the flesh receives a fire that's unquenchable. Whereas the people of God undergo a fire that is necessary for purifying that will not ultimately consume you, but will bring you into greater relationship with God and greater effectiveness in this world. That the fire for the people of God in this world is now. And it's not in the next. The Savior is talking about fire that purifies and preserves us in this life. That He indicates that the means by which God uses to purify His people is to act as salt. To remove the corruption of the heart and life in a fire of, of trial. Just as the old covenant sacrifice offered to God was seasoned with salt and burned, with the, burned on the altar, the new covenant believer offers himself as a living sacrifice to God out of thanksgiving. And part of that sacrifice is to be salted with fire. That listen, God is committed to your salvation. That God is not only committed to your salvation, but to your holiness. And that He chooses us in eternity past so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And that He calls us to sanctification, but He does not call us to sanctification in our own strength, but He calls us to sanctification um, in His strength and faithfulness. That He calls you and I to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to cultivate godliness by His grace, and, but at the same time gives us the power to fight the fight, and He Himself, while He's at work in us, to will and to do of His good pleasure. Thus Christians should have a totally different perspective on suffering should not scare us. It should not disable us. It should not paralyze us. It should not do this. It should not do that. Um, we should receive it well. We should suffer well. Christians die well. Why? Because they know that ultimately the fire will not consume them. And that if it does not consume them in this life, all it can do that the fires of this world, even if they are practically wrought by the devil, could only Make us more like His Son. It's as if the, the, the old death blow of Satan himself there upon the cross, it seems that he's got the victory, thus, yet, yet he secures the salvation of all those who would believe all throughout eternity. Thus being an agent that, 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 even, that, that, that even secures the salvation of sinners. 
In some sense, the devil is the agent uh, in Job to make him more like Christ. You know, this, mess, this man who is most righteous in all the earth, at the end of it, he says, my eyes have not seen uh, and the ears or my eyes have seen what I, my eyes have never seen. And my ears have heard what they only heard um, in former days. That Satan, with all the power, all the, the schemes, all the glory that he has to bring of himself um, to, to, to wreak havoc upon a believer like Job and a believer like you, uh, all that he has to offer is more of Christ. That's your lot in life. That's what the fire brings. When all the world, all hell, and all devil gathers together and schemes with one another, the only thing that they can do for the believer is, is cause us to persevere and to press on as it makes us more like Christ in the fire. That's what Jesus, I believe, is teaching them here. And that all of Jesus' followers will be salted. They will be. Um, they will be salted. It's future. Um, it's future, it's active, or it's passive. It's indicative, it's a statement, it's passive. It's, it's something that we receive, it's not something that we do. There's a sense in which you're to cut off, and there's a sense in which I am to obey and uh, have responsibility. But at the same time, it says that you will be salted. It is something that you will receive. You don't salt yourself. You know, this isn't about um, self-mutilation or flagellation or you um, becoming a monk and, 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 and just cutting things off to cut things off, you know, um, to, to appear more righteous. That the salting of the, the believer is, a, is, is something that God does, not something that we do. Isaiah 48 verse 9 through 11 says, I may lose my passion and zeal to or, or Let me turn there. Isaiah chapter number 48 and verse number 9. Um, gives kind of a sense of what God does with the people of God. Verse number 9, he says, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to Another, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That as much as God loves you, God loves himself more. Um, he is faithful to himself and that for himself, he will make you um, that which glorifies and honors him. That there are many days where I lose passion and zeal to be holy. But God does not lose the passion and zeal to make me holy. When my commitment begins to grow cold in the furnace um, and the furnace that burns within me begins to die out. The furnace that burns within him for the commitment to me and to you and to his bride has not tottered one degree. That in all of your zeal, when it begins to wane, God stays full, God stays strong in his commitment as he's covenanted with you. That's the idea. So you see the sacrifice, you see the fire, and then you see um, really the salt. The salt. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is, is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? How will you season it? Salt is good, but what if it loses its saltiness? And from what I understand in the Middle East, salt never really loses its flavor. Not in the sense that it's sitting on the shelf and it's because of its shelf life, it's less more salty today than what it is. It's either salty or it's not. Um, salt in the Middle East would often become 
not salty at all, or it would lose its identity whenever it was mixed with other materials. For example, whenever the Dead Sea, um, oftentimes it would, re, um, it, would, it, would cons- it would begin to go down, uh, and then salt would be left there as the sun would come down. It would be mixed with impurities, alkaline uh, bases, uh, minerals that would, that would actually kind of um, cause the effect um, or negate the effect. Thus, the salt would lose its saltiness. Um, but, but it wasn't in the sense that salt, you know, just began to erode over time and lose its saltiness. And the idea is one or the other. The idea is either it's salty or it's not. It's not, it's not like there's degrees of saltiness. The, the, the idea is even in degrees of saltiness, it's still salty. You know, that what he's not talking about here is a group of Christians who, you know, are Christians and they're true believers and this and that. And, you know, they're just living a life of nominal Christianity and they're just not being salty out there. And what he's, what he's, what he's arguing here is that everyone that is of him, I'm convinced, is, is salty because that's what they are. And if they're not, um, the idea in other places is, is that it will be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. And whenever you look at that type of language... That type of language in other places um, does not speak of believers who are living nominal Christianity, but those um, who are falsely converted and have an idea that they are somewhat in the family, but ultimately um, apostate and turn away from the faith. And what Christ is arguing here is that, that salt is unique and that salt accomplishes something and that, that, that it is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will... Uh, you season it. And it gives the idea of the soils. It gives the idea of many other places of a group of people who have a, 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 a superficial faith, but when trials and tribulations, Matthew chapter 13, I believe verse number 20 or so, uh, when trials and tribulations come because of the Word, um, they're, they're uprooted because, that, because there was no root in them. But the idea is, is that there's a superficial attachment um, to some form of Christianity, and it was never that which it actually um, claimed to be. Um, so many people today would claim to be salt, but they are, they are not salt. Um, it, it is somewhat of the idea, but here I'm, I'm convinced that, that salt is speaking of um, the idea of, um, of trials and tribulation. That, that, that salt is, is good. You know, and it's hard. It's hard to identify what sometimes he means by salt. Let's just be honest. You know, you go to Matthew chapter 5 and I think verse number 12 and 13 where he talks about you're the light of the world, right? And then he talks about that you're the salt of the earth. I think light of the world is somewhat universal throughout ages. There's been no question. There's been really no question about what the light is. It just seems kind of um, just, just, I mean, everyone looks and they understand what that means. But you go to person after person, you listen to sermon after sermon, you, you read, you talk to people after people, um, uh, Christians, and you ask, what does it mean, the salt of the earth? And they give you about five different answers. You know, why? Because salt is good for purification, for example. Um, salt is good for preservation, for example. Salt makes one thirsty, for example. You know, salt, um, it, 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 it retards decay. Um, it, it, it stings in the wound. So you can go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 or so, and you can get on sermon audio and you can find out, you know, five different takes on that with five different applications. And then you come over here and the, the people try to import certain things into this text. Um, so so it's, it's somewhat hard for the Christian to read the text and understand exactly what Jesus is talking about um, if you try to take an aspect of salt because it has so many different aspects 
and try to read that into the text. So I've come to the conclusion, and it could be a wrong conclusion, but I've come to the conclusion that ultimately the thing that we know about salt um, that can be utilized across the pages of Scripture and applied according to the text is that it is distinct. That that's the idea. That it's different. It's, um, it's something that is profitable because it is something that is distinctly different. And with that carries some of those ideas. Carries with it that, that, that because it is distinct, it purifies. Because it is distinct, it preserves. Because it is distinct, it is used as an antiseptic. Because it is distinct, it makes thirsty. Because it is distinct, it causes uh, stinging in the wound. In the wound. Um, and that these are all biblical interpretations. You go to the Old Testament and you can find all of that. That all of that is an application of salt. But the thing about salt is, is that it's distinctive. And that when it loses that distinctiveness, that's when it becomes useless and worthless. That when it stops being what it is supposed to be, that, 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 um, that it is worthless and it is to be cast out and trod under the foot of men. That in Matthew chapter 5, for example, in verse uh, 12 or 13, um, you read about the Christians, believers, being the salt of the earth. What does it mean? Now, if you take the applications, you could apply it in a number of ways, but essentially what it means, it means that you are different. It means that you are distinct. It means that when God works in a man's life according to the Word of God, by the power of His Spirit, um, that there is something that is wrought in you that the rest of the world does not have. And that you are to be distinct. You are to be different. You know, and the, and the spirit of the age today is to be alike. You know? It is to conform to the world so that we can receive the world into the people, into the family of God. And once we get them here, then maybe we can preach the gospel and they'll be forever changed. You know, but the idea in the scriptures is, is that salt accomplishes something that nothing else will accomplish. And it accomplishes it whenever it's particularly rubbed in. You know, one of the, one of the, salt in and of itself is nothing special. Salt that sits in the shaker, salt that sits in the sea, salt that does this or that, you know, it's, it's, it's it, 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 something extremely crucial to the concept of salt is that all throughout Scripture and even in common life is that it must be, it must come into contact with whatever it is that you want to influence. That, that, that salt is an influencer, that salt is a game changer. When salt is introduced to whatever the subject is of its influence, that it changes that thing. Why? Because it is distinctly different. For example, Christians in the world. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to go with that text. Um, Christians within the world, because they are salt, when present and rubbed in, because it makes contact with, with whatever their family, with their community, with the culture, with this or that, something changes. That's the idea. The same with food. You want to preserve food, you have, to, you have to kill the bacteria, you want to put it in the wound, you have to rub it in. You have to come in contact with it. It can't stay in the, as a salt shaker. Otherwise, it is inherently virtuous and yet, yet accomplishing nothing. And that's what we do, you know? That's what we do in, the, in our lives, in the churches. We think that there's something, you know, essentially special about, you know, who we are, and there is. 
And there is, but God commands for the salt to come into contact with various venues, uh, men with your families, women with your families, with, you know, with the culture, with the church, this or that, that we are to get into whatever it is to influence that person. And at the end of the day, um, whether it's positive or whether it's negative, um, this, this culture, this church, this community, um, this family, my family, um, the neighborhood I live in should be different because I am there. That's the point about salt. That's the idea of salt. It's distinctly different. And when coming in contact with its subject influences it, and we could argue either positively or negatively, but at the end of the day, it stings so it knows that we're there. You know, that's the idea. We, we could, let's transport that into Mark chapter 9, because I think you can. I think that that's the idea of salt. And given the context... Um, Fire for the Christian is distinctly different than for the non-Christian. That when rubbed in, the trials of life, the afflictions, the cutting off of sin, and various other things, that it accomplishes something distinctly that nothing else in this world can accomplish. That the trials and tribulations and afflictions for the believer works again something in us that is um, otherwise unattainable. That in a sense, it is a gift from the Lord. Philippians 1.29 says, For you has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, we love to go there and say, God grants faith in Him, He says. But the end of the verse is this, but also to suffer for His sake. That not only is faith the gift of God, but suffering is a gift of God because it purifies and preserves us. Psalm chapter number 119 I love this passage as well. Psalm chapter 119 and verse number 67, the psalmist writes these words, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes, he says. And then uh, verse number 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Before I was afflicted, I went my own way, he says. I did my own thing. I walked. I rebelled against the holy God. I, I, I pursued my family. I pursued the culture. I did all these things before I was afflicted. But now I, I learn your word. How did you learn the word? It was good for me that I've been afflicted, well, that I may learn your statutes. That I may learn your statutes. That the afflictions have been good for me because they taught me to obey. They taught me to love. They taught me to do this, that, that, that without afflictions often comes an unbridled, unholy love. But God uses those afflictions in our lives to make us more like Himself. That's the idea. That if you long for the lack of afflictions and you long for the lack of persecution and you long for the lack of this and you, you want your comfort and you want your ease, um, then along come with that often comes pride, apathy, and indifference. As the psalmist says, that I thank God for what He did to me because it taught me a lot. And that if so, he goes on in the text in Mark chapter number nine that, um, that if salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty? Again, the idea is I think essentially you can't. And that, but that salt is good. The salt is good. That it's good because it's distinct and because it accomplishes what nothing else can accomplish. That, that, that which purifies and weans us off the love of things is good. 
as the psalmist says. But if salt becomes tasteless, then it's useless. That Luke also gives kind of the same idea in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 through 34. And he goes through this, this chain of, of teaching where he says that you've got to forsake father and mother. You need to count the cost like a king does before he sieges another kingdom. Um, and then he goes on and he says, but, 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 but salt that loses its flavor is no good. Um, and he brings the point, I believe, that just because, you, you know, um, that, that, that if you're going to engage in trials, you need to understand what the trials are there for. And that if you're a Christian, you, you receive the trials well and differently because, because, because it's distinct. And because it's distinct, it accomplishes things that could never be accomplished. But at the same time, what I don't want you to walk away to think about today and think is, is that just because I'm afflicted, then I'm a believer. You know, the nature of sin and the, the nature of the curse um, will inevitably bring us all trials. It will bring us all tribulation. But the thing that makes... This distinct for the Christian, for the believer, I mean, is the way that they receive the afflictions. So you're walking, you may walk away today and say, that, you know, I went through this when I was 18, and I went through this when I was 7, and I went through this, I must be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's posing the, the, the question in some sense, or I'm posing the question in some sense to say that, that, that not necessarily the presence, are, you, are afflictions present, but what did the presence of afflictions work in you? That's the idea. Because afflictions come to everyone. And often what they do because of their distinctness is delineate between the believer and the unbeliever and how they receive them. Colossians 4.14 is an interesting text because there Paul greets and sends greetings from a man named Demas. Demas, who was a faithful brother in the Lord and during his time in Colossae. But in 2 Timothy, you find these words as Paul is there in Mamertine prison, and possibly to go to his death not long after. In his last letter, he says, Only Luke is here with me. Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me and turned away. That demon in the heart of affl- that Demas in the heart of affliction. That Demas in the comfort and the uh, pomp and circumstance of ministry in Colossians is right alongside the Apostle Paul. But Demas in the heart of affliction does not persevere. Why? Because of the love of this present world. It overpowers and overturns um, his desire to be afflicted for the cause of Christ and for the Word. This is exactly what Christ taught in Matthew 13. That, is the, that, 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 that what was sown on rocky ground and the seed is the one who hears the word immediately receives it with joy yet has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word immediately he falls away. The idea is this, that salt is distinctly different in the life of a believer than an unbeliever. In an unbeliever that is in the faith, um, it, it purifies and it pushes them out. Why? Because they love comfort and ease. And maybe you're seeing that in our culture today. As persecution begins to come down the pike in some seed form, um, you know, you're seeing people um, abandon the faith at a large level. The question that we would have is, is did they have faith at all? Um, that's the idea. But for the people of God, it cultivates a love for God. Persecution, affliction cultivates a love for God and a trust in Him that causes them to persevere. And for others... It drives them into the world for comforts and pleasures that it has to offer. This is the idea, you know, that if you're a believer and the persecution, the afflictions are driving you to Christ, then take comfort, friend. 
But if it's the, persever- the, perse- the, the persecutions, the afflictions, and the sin, as it, as, it, as it falls down upon you today, and it's causing you to question whether this thing is worth it at all, and ultimately to abandon it, then, um, then that wasn't salt at all. Um, that, it, that it accomplishes something different. That just because trials are there doesn't necessitate that you're a Christian. Job 5, 7 says, Man is born of trouble. as sparks fly upwards. You know, that you will have trials, everyone will. You know, we all will. The question is, is do they mean anything at all, right? You ever think about that? As I alluded to earlier, that's the difficulty, isn't it? We wonder why. We wonder what the point of it is at all. We wonder if it means anything. We wonder if God loves us. We wonder if this thing's worth carrying on at all sometimes. Why? Because we think that they're somewhat senseless. We think that they're somewhat meaningless. Therefore, it makes it hard. It makes it hard to carry on. It makes it difficult to, to parent. It makes it difficult to adhere to the Word of God. It makes it difficult to raise up your little ones. It makes it difficult to love your husband or to love your wife. It makes it difficult to go to that job. It makes it difficult to do this or that. Um, why? Because you're wondering, what's the purpose and meaning of it all? Does it mean anything? You know, does my pain mean anything at all? But it's not quite as hard to go under the knife or surgery or sit in a room with a needle in your arm for chemo that you know will make you lose hair, throw up for days, lose weight, and could ultimately kill you. It's not quite as hard. And you can persevere and you can go do it because you know that not only is it killing you, but it's killing the cancer as well. And you know that to kill it, it must kill some of you. And there's purpose in it. And in that sense, it's good. In that sense, you show up at your appointment. And in that sense, you show up five days a week. Why? Because you know what's in you. And you know that it's good for you. And you know that it's difficult. But you know that it'll give more life. And that it'll give more um, opportunity. And it'll give more reason to live. You know that if you don't, it'll kill you. That's the idea. That as we walk away and we look at the culture, we look at the world, we look at ourselves, we look in the mirror and we look at one another and we are just bombarded and plagued with the difficulties of life, we must remember that salt is good. We have to remember that salt is good. We have to remember that, 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 that we are the ones being salted by fire and that the one who salts with fire, he's good. He consumes it all. But it will never all be consumed. Because He's given an eternal inheritance to those that are in Christ. And as long as Christ lives, you live. And that you are to have, He goes on to encourage salt in yourselves. And that you are to be at peace with one another. And there's some, there's some difficulty with all of that. But the idea of peace means a, a completeness, a wholeness, a lack of, not just a lack of conflict, but a harmony within the, the, the whole entity. There's a unity within um, whatever it is that has peace. That's the idea. That it even cultivates within you, I believe, salty fire. You're salted with fire, you're seasoned with it, you're consumed. That even in the midst of it, there's a peace that is wrought. Not only within yourself, but within others. You know? That's the idea that they're in the midst of a conflict. They're laying stumbling blocks between one another. They're thinking, I'm better than you and you're better than me and this and that. And it's causing all of this disparage and all of this disunity within them. And he says, that's not the goal. You know, that's not the idea. And there's an idea of even when saltiness comes and that when fire comes, you know what it does to believers? It draws them nigh to one another. You know, not only Scripture supports that, but look. 
Like, look over the last month, look over the last years, look over the last uh, history, uh, the history of your life. You know what you find? You find that when trials come into life, the design of those trials is to press us in closer to Christ, but also closer to one another. In the bonds of love and the bonds of Christ so that you can gain mutual strength from one another. Now that is one of the purposes of the body of Christ, that affliction draws us near and more intimate, not only with the Spirit of God, but also with one another. It stimulates, Hebrews chapter 10, us to provoke each other on to love and to good deeds. That when we believe and that Christ salts us, you know what it does? It, it brings us together to where we're even more saltier than what we ever were before. And we are with Moses to choose to suffer affliction with God's people than to tend to embrace the pleasures of sin for a season. That that's the idea. That that's the idea that when you're suffering, you run to Christ, you look to Him because you know that your suffering has, has ultimate meaning and that it's for your good. But also, we learn that good sometimes from the um, practical application within the body. That while the Spirit of God goes with you, that if you have a good body of believers that are faithful to the Lord, that in the midst of that affliction, run to them, I beg you, that that's good. Salt is good. Some of you are living there alone with the horrors of yourself, and you're wondering if anybody cares. And abstractly, you think that God does, but on some days you're not so quite sure. I encourage you to look to one another. Where you see the love of God concretely expressed, the Spirit of God empowers you and one another to do things that you could never do. And to be that servant, to be that first, to be that last, to pursue the first by being last to serve and to wash one another's feet, <coughs> to take up the towel of a slave. And I can tell you, I can't tell you how many times, but I could give you instance after instance how I've been stirred up to love and good works by other brothers, being vulnerable and confiding into them, and sometimes even confessing sin, wondering what the meaning of it all is. And often I find it in them. Often that's where God, God makes His presence known through the power of His Spirit as we stir one another up to love and to good works. You know, and most of those experiences would have never happened if it had not been for fire. I wouldn't know you from Adam. You wouldn't know me. Many of you, we wouldn't have prayed together. Many of you, we wouldn't have cried together. Many of you, we wouldn't have rejoiced together when God came through. Um, you, know what, you, know what, you know what caused that? Fire. You must remember that salt is good. But then again, it's only as good as you understand what it's there for and you embrace it as it is. You know? Then you find meaning and then you find purpose. And then that causes you to persevere. And it's all the Spirit. It's all the Spirit of God working in you, all the Spirit of God working in me. And if that's you today, I encourage you to turn to Christ or to turn to one another. But if you're a believer this morning, and you will receive fire. Some in this world, but never in the next. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, I beg you to turn to Christ because your fire may not be in this life, but it will be in the next. And if you're outside of Christ and you do not know the love that we expressed to you this morning, 
um, and, and, you're, and you're hard and you're cold and you're indifferent, but God is working in your life to bring you to Himself. I beg you and implore you on the authority of Christ and His Word to repent and believe and to turn to Him. That He is an able and a capable Savior if you will look to Christ and live. That He endured the just punishment of, and, and the wrath of your sin um, so that He could secure the salvation of His bride. And that if you don't receive the fire in this life, you'll receive it in the next. But if you don't receive the fire in the next, you will receive it in this life. And it's good. It's good. There's an old hymn by a man by the name of A.B. Simpson that says, Fire of God, thy work begin. Burn up the dross of self and sin. Burn off my fetters and set me free. And through the furnace, walk with me. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the blessing of your word. God, we thank you for the ministry of Christ that lies before us. Father, it could have been folklore, um, stories that were passed on. But you were so gracious, Father, to leave, before, leave behind and before us an eternal word that we can look to, that we can glean from, that we can hope in, that we can cling to, Father, on the days when it doesn't all make sense. Father, in the days when the world, the flesh, and the devil just seem altogether too strong, and that if it wasn't by your grace, we would be consumed. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yet you keep covenant with us. And when the zeal is gone, your zeal is not. When our love wanes, yours has never waxed any stronger. When we are inconsistent, you have never been more consistent. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. So, Father, in the process of the fire, we do not glory in ourselves because we know that if we are gold, it was not because we furnished it. Um, it is by grace and grace alone that we are what we are. God, and that if we are the salt of the world and the earth, God, make us distinct. May the world know that we are yours and different. But as the text says, Father, if salt enters into our life and you decide to salt us by fire, Father, help us to remember the salt is good. It's excellent. It's necessary. It's needed in our lives. Guard us from the comforts and the pleasures of this life. May there not be a Demas among us who would love this present world, Father, forsake the brethren, apostatize and leave the faith. Father, may you work in each person here a grace that is eternal if you already haven't. God, and help them to remember that even in all their unfaithfulness, if they're yours, you will never be unfaithful. Father, I pray that you would remind me of that often. Because life is hard. It's difficult. Sin is overwhelming. Discouraging and depressing. The culture is no better. And the devil has every reason and scheme to make it even worse. Remind us that you're there. Father, in the darkest of nights, remind us that you're there. 
And if it's by fire, so be it. Because salt is good. In Jesus' name, amen.